Welcome to The Goddess and the Medicine Woman with Melissa McHugh and Sydney Decker. In this episode, we talk about the trauma of narcissistic abuse, how to recognize this type of relationship, and how to begin to heal with psychotherapist and coach Chelsea Brooke Cole. Come on in and join the conversation. Hello, Sydney Decker. Hello, Melissa McHugh. How are you today? Good. Yeah, the classic go-to good. I'll just go with that. (laughs) awesome yes i'm excited today we have a uh, guest today but first i wanted to talk to you just very briefly about having uh your very first um guest experience on another podcast which is very exciting for you yeah so that was yesterday and it was so much fun because it was like you're in person so it's a podcast that's in my local city which is pittsburgh and it's called Master the Master and Creation Podcast. And it they were just really, really cool. It was like my like the perfect first guest appearance. They were just so chill. The conversation like ran organically. Like it just was like really, really good. I mean, of course, I'm sitting in my head being like, what did I say? Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. Or was that okay? Or like, what did I wear? And like, how does my hair? And then they took a photo of me and I was like, oh my God, I don't have access to editing the photo. They're going to just post it. Oh my God. So those things I'm like realizing are coming up for me. But overall, like I'm actually really excited to start going out there and talking more about my book and things. And that's what it was. We focused on just my journey and how I got here. And like we talked about the podcast too. So yeah, we'll keep it brief because I think we'll go more into it. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's time. go more into it. Our in our next uh, episode, we'll talk. We'll dive into that a little bit. And then yeah. also, I just want to say for me, my chickens are driving me crazy. I have chickens now. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. And we just introduced five more chickens in to the flock, and it's not going well. The old chickens don't like the new chickens, and it's just this horrible thing. So I'm very stressed out about it. Yeah, well, the new, the old chickens are spoiled in the new they one. They really are. Yeah, so they just they gotta, really are. they'll yeah. be all right. Yeah, I actually went up today and I saw that they had allowed one new chicken to come into their space. And they're like, all right, yeah, we can, we can allow you. So that's what's, what I'm going through on the farm right now. <laughs> the chicken dilemma. The chicken dilemma. <laughs> seems like high school over there. I know. That's what it seems like. The mean girls. The mean mm-hmm. girls are over there. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, today we do have another guest and so excited to talk to Chelsea Brooke Cole. Chelsea is a licensed psychotherapist, a coach, and speaker specializing in narcissistic abuse and relational trauma. Chelsea has spoken at HR and counseling conferences, internationally recognized universities, and national organizations on narcissism, narcissism in the workplace, how to communicate with difficult people emotional intelligence, and effective therapeutic strategies for narcissistic abuse survivors. She is the author of If Only I'd Known, How to Outsmart Narcissists, Set Guilt-Free Boundaries, and Create Unshakable Self-Worth. Chelsea is also a certified partner trauma therapist, registered play therapist, and level one trained Gottman Method couples therapist. And she is currently pursuing a doctorate in social psychology from Liberty University. So hello, Chelsea. It's so nice to have you here today. Hello. So great to be here with you guys. Wonderful. So I think um, our theme today is going to be around uh, narcissism because it seems like you have so much knowledge and so much of us as um, highly (laughs) sensitive 
mm-hmm. uh, women have found ourselves. And I can't say only women. I'm sure there are definitely men. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of that. that I know too. actually a few of my male clients, it's like a reverse. They're the more sensitive one and they're drawn to the um, more narcissistic female actually. Yeah. So I'd yeah. really like to talk about that. So I think first it's just, why don't you uh, tell us and everybody what is a narcissist? Mm. So glad you started with that question because it's a buzzword these days, right? Like we're hearing about narcissists all over the place. And so that's some of the pushback, honestly, that I get when I start talking about narcissism is people are like, oh, here we go. Talking about narcissism again, everyone's a narcissist. But I really think the overuse and misuse of mental health concepts like gaslighting narcissism is it's really sad that that's happened because it's a slap in the face to real survivors who've really experienced these relationships. So when we are talking about narcissist, it's not a diagnosis. And I think that's really important for people to to hear and understand first and foremost, it's actually a descriptive term. So when we say someone is narcissistic, it's like saying someone is agreeable, conscientious, extroverted. It's a description of patterns of behavior over time. So narcissism when, when you talk about someone who's a narcissist, we're talking about someone who is consistently high conflict, rigid in their thinking, they're antagonistic in their behaviors toward you, they are victimized, they're vindictive, they're entitled, and they're emotionally dysregulated. Narcissism is a personality trait that exists on a spectrum. So you can be a little narcissistic to highly narcissistic. I always like to say at the low end of the scale, you have like that entitled know-it-all at the dinner party who's like great for livening things up, but really is not going to be your go-to person for an emotional conversation. And at the high end of the scale, we have the malignant narcissist, which is basically a cousin to the psychopath. So it's on a spectrum and we can dive into more about that, but there's an overview. Yeah, Yeah. that's so interesting because I actually dated one on the low end. (laughs) We know who that is. We won't say names. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought So yeah, because I I always dated one on the- yeah, the complete mm-hmm. other and the so malignant one. Yeah, yeah, I and I didn't that. realize that it wasn't a diagnosis and that it that there mm-hmm. is a spectrum like that. I thought you were either one or you're not one. So, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. it's a personality trait. So just like someone can be a little introverted to highly introverted, like myself, even though I'm in a public more space now, I'm totally introverted. So after this, I will like go crash somewhere. <laughs> after yeah, me, all my too. <laughs> me too. Me and you. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. And, and I can join the having dated and married narcissists. So that's I'm right what was my question you. was going to be is yeah. like, what is your experience with narcissism? And when did you realize like, whoa, this is this is a Mm. pattern or this is person is not for me or, you know, like when did you start to actually notice that and decide I want to help people with this? Yeah. That's been a process and a journey because if we want to talk about really when my experiences with narcissism and narcissistic abuse began, we have to go all the way back into childhood. So I was raised in a household with what I would understand now was more of a neglectful narcissist where there's not a lot of bravado. There's more of that vulnerable, victimized feel. Um, my, my dad was just very emotionally cold and distant, neglectful, was one person to friends and other, like when we went out, he would be a different person than who he would be at home. And I remember thinking, why can't you just be like that at home? Like, why is it so difficult to engage and be social? Because clearly you're capable, you're just not doing it at home. So that was the environment that I was used to. And I grew up feeling 
not enough and I didn't understand the dynamics, like the toxic kind of hot and cold dysfunction that was happening in the house. So that pretty much set me up to have adult romantic relationships with narcissists because I was very used to feeling like I had to earn love and that relationships were this push and pull and you're trying to make things better and then you have good days and then you have bad days, like the setup for the trauma bond. So it was really a process for me to recognize that this kind of hot and cold relationship felt familiar. And I went into obviously being a psychotherapist and through my own healing journey and my own therapy too, I discovered this, this narcissism is what I've been experiencing in narcissistic abuse. So that was a great explanation. Um, So moving forward from your father's relationship, did you notice a dynamic with um, your mom and your father too, that you think that maybe you took in a little bit of like, how did your mom, how was that relationship? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that. Cause most people don't. And that like really is actually a big, a big part of it. So my mom is an empath. She's like one mm. of the most compassionate, highly sensitive people, you know, that you're most caring people you'll ever meet. And so what I really noticed in their relationship is that she was trying repeatedly to make things better. And she would try to talk to him. She would try to have conversations. And of course, she, they would try to keep things private for me, but I was just highly suspicious like child and I would sneak around and try to hear things. Um, so I would notice that she would be crying or upset, you know, or trying to have conversations. And he would just sit there stone cold, like no emotion. I don't think I ever saw him comfort her, have just like decent, um, basic human compassion. So how I took that was I became very shut down. I became very like internalized with my emotions. I carried a lot of anger and I decided, you know what? No one's going to get to my emotions. I'm not going to open up to people and I'm just going to try to focus on being hyper successful, develop more perfectionistic tendencies. So that's how I kind of took that and saw that dynamic. Yeah. Cause that's, I always like wonder, cause we take in more than just like the the narcissist, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? We take in like, especially with our parents, we take in that whole dynamic. So yeah. that was really interesting for you to see when you wanted, I guess, when did you turn back on? You know what I mean? When did you start <laughs> yeah. to realize like, or maybe that's still a process for you, but when did you start to say, you know what, I'm going to try to open mm-hmm. up more into this, mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. my emotions? It was a peeling back of layers for sure. And I think for all survivors, that's kind of what it is. It's it you you have insightful moments that peel back the onion or, you know, peel back the layers little by little. So, you know, like I said, I I am a psychotherapist and during grad programs, they kind of work. You do end up doing some kind of group therapy and some some type of therapy through your classes and just through talking with, um, you know, your cohort and things like that. So that did help me start to open up. I started to see and notice the dynamics and what I had been through and made sense of it a little bit. Honestly, I did. we didn't talk a lot about narcissism in grad program, which is an ongoing issue, which is why I talk to therapists and speak at conferences now about helping um, educate therapists and coaches on this topic. But I guess the big change would be I had a couple really significant relationships with narcissists more one of them was more grandiose um just very extroverted and 
arrogant, kind of like bravado, that kind of type of person. And then the next narcissist I got with looked completely different. He was a vulnerable narcissist. He was victimized and honestly seemed really nice in the beginning. Like I thought this guy is the nicest guy ever, but you know, nothing was ever enough for him. And turned out that he was in our therapist's words, one of the worst sex addicts he had ever seen. So he was hiding a lot just under a very different persona. So at the end of that relationship, I think that that's when I really started to make a change because I decided, you know what, I will end up spending um, my whole life trying to help someone. I'll end up sacrificing my whole life for someone else if I don't really stop and, and look at my patterns. So I think that was a real turning point when I really decided to to heal. And how long were you? So actually, this is like a different question, I guess, but because you said therapy. So did you guys go to therapy mm -hmm. together or was that something that you were doing on your own? I did do some individual therapy and we went to actually several different therapists together because like I said, he ended up being a sex addict. So we were going to like three different, he had a psychologist and, and a um, certified sex therapist we were seeing. And so we were doing different stuff for his healing. And then I was doing my own individual therapy as well. And when it comes to, cause I think I had, I think I had a similar experience with the person with whom I was in a relationship with because I we also went to therapy and stuff so mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you like and if you're open to sharing and if you're not sure. that's okay too but what did the sex addict look like like what behaviors because I believe that I was in a relationship with mm -hmm. one um, and it's like what's the fine line between like what a guy does naturally just as a guy you know what I mean mm -hmm. and what is that like addict like well, when we get into addiction, we're really talking about frequency and severity. You know, we're kind of going back to that spectrum idea. For him in particular, he had actually had years of inappropriate sexual experiences, and um, it was a it was a lot. Um, because it's just it's something that I started to notice in my dynamic and my relationship, and I think that it's. Um, I don't know about all narcissists, but I think certain level of narcissism, you do start to tip into that almost, for men anyways. Obviously, I don't know about women, but that sexual addiction almost, it's like that um, for me, I see like is a theme. So that's for my my relationship and I'm going to keep it low key just for him, him too, ever, if he ever listens to this. But it was masturbating all the time like I don't mm -hmm. like all the time like almost choosing to do that over spending time with me right. and like would have I don't even know I found thousands and thousands and and I mean thousands of photos of girls on Instagram that he had saved mm -hmm. like you know how you can save posts yeah. like he had saved them too and it would be like a waitress that we had at a restaurant like somehow he found her Instagram like and I was like wow that was like really what I was like okay so it basically is that like a trigger that would happen like yes. he sees someone and then he want and then he has thoughts and then he goes and like that type of thing is that I just want to I'm trying to I'm still healing for mine yeah 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 <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot to heal from. Yes, that's a great example. It is more like that. It's that's that anything can trigger them. And like you said, there's a preference over their internal world of watching porn or masturbating or or just seeking out 
looking at pleasurable things and like basting in it, ruminating mm-hmm. in it. It's not like, you know, oh, there's an attractive person. A right. thought pops in your head and then you shift. Right. It's not a noticing of people. It's It can be anything. Like triggers can be songs, voices, um, <laughs> colors. Like there's so many things that can be a trigger because one innocent thing reminds them of uh, something else that they turn into a sexual thought. So that's right. the biggest thing that I noticed that I can relate to as well is there were just so many triggers. It wasn't like... Normally, when we think of sex addiction, I think we think of people who are just going and having sex with everybody. Yes. And I think that is really changing, especially now in this generation with so much more access to online. You can just look up, like, you never have to leave your house and you can mm-hmm. be a sex addict. So right. it's just very different. The triggers look very different. Right. And my question, next question, I mean, I love this conversation. Like, I've been healing, like, <laughs> I've been going through this for like, um, <laughs> I haven't dated anyone for like really like seriously for like two years because I've been healing from it because yeah. I mean, it's a lot to enter into a new re- I'm triggered about anything. Yep. I'm like, is he lying? Is he doing this? Is he touching himself to a girl that we just had dinner with? Like, I don't know. Yep. Like I, I just, it's like so many things, but one thing that I've noticed and I don't know, this is why I wanted to get your opinion is this is a theme for me. I tend to, um, because my father committed suicide or died by suicide. Mm. I'm trying to use the correct wording. So I have a huge abandonment wound. So you know how like attracts like. But I tend to um, be attracted to men who have a large mother wound. Because mm. I'm very, I'm an empath. I'm very sensitive. I could be very like motherly and like very mm. nurturing and very like there. But I tend to, the guys that I've been drawn to that have had more narcissistic tendencies to them have a really not so either they didn't really have a relationship with their mom or the relationship with their mom was not good, like abusive Mm -hmm. in some way, or they felt neglected or ignored. So is that something that is a common thread in the narcissistic community or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much there we could dive into. I think, first of all, just speaking to what you said about how you can be so nurturing. So, of course, you find yourself drawn to people who need that. And I think that's how a lot of times narcissists end up playing on what's really a strength. But we have to learn to set boundaries around that, which is something I talk about in my book, because people often feel like, man, do I have to choose between being a really kind, compassionate person or setting boundaries because they feel like they can't do both. So that's definitely something that I see. And as far as narcissists and do they have like a background as far as a mother wound, especially the narcissistic men certainly can. It's more about what we see when we look back on why someone a narcissist, there tends to be an environment where there's overindulgence and underindulgence. There's an overindulgence in status, how things look, how things appear, achievement, recognition, power, money, things like that. And then an underindulgence in their emotional world, who they are, Mm -hmm. empathy, values. And so oftentimes narcissists grow up and, and their focus is external. It doesn't really matter who I am. It matters what people think I am or who people think I am. It doesn't really matter what I do. It matters what I can get people to think that I do. Yes. that's kind of what we see, you know, looking back. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely making a lot of sense because the person like that I was in a close intimate relationship with that jumps out while we're talking about this, it was 
at one point he when I first met him he told me a he a different name like he had a different name he like had different parents like literally like this whole facade and then Mm -hmm. um COVID hit so we quarantined together of course so I'm thinking he's one person and then all of a sudden we move in together a month after we move in together because it's quarantine all these things then there's this big huge blow up that we have this huge fight I mean we were had fights before that but there's this huge fight and then he starts to tell yeah well I'm really this person and this is my parents and this is who I am and this is what's happening and like he like it just it didn't matter because as long as he had the nice things and the nice car mm-hmm. and the nice shoes and the nice clothes and had the nice job, like everything would be okay in his life. And that's, of course, me. Now we've been in a relationship for five months. I can do this. I can save him. Now I know the truth. <laughs> yeah. Like no boundaries. I had none. So this relationship right. was um, a blessing in disguise for that because now I have hardcore boundaries. Like I don't mm-hmm. talk to anyone. So I'm like, <laughs> I tipped the scale, right? right? So now I'm trying to find a middle ground. And that's okay. Yeah. You know what? That is part of healing. Sometimes you have to go to, I'm not going to be in a relationship with anyone or open up to anyone until I feel safe to. And that is yeah. often exactly what healing looks like. And you made a di- another great point about what we often see in narcissists is that they will lie about anything, like literally their name, their parents, what school they went to, where they grew up. You think you're getting to know one person and then drip by drip, you find out that you don't really know this person at all. And that's what's so insidious and harmful about narcissistic abuse is that it happens so subtly that yeah. you think the insecurities and the difficulties you're experiencing are you rather than what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. You think, I just need to make this better. We can communicate. Now they're finally being honest. Now we can get Mm -hmm. somewhere. That's something that really kept me in my past relationships is because with each layer of truth that came out, I thought, oh, okay, we're getting somewhere. Like, why would I end it now? Now they're finally being honest. Now they're finally agreed to therapy. How can I end it now? Yep. And that he did. So he agreed sense. to therapy. He did. We went to therapy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and yeah. And that was, yeah, exactly. And there's, so looking back, and this is another reason why I encourage survivors to bring so much compassion to what they went through and why they can't judge themselves because sure, looking back, it makes sense because now you know what you didn't know. Now you know that they were completely making things up in line, but you didn't know then. You're constantly trying to make sense of what they're doing based on who you think they are, not who they actually are. Love that. That's a really great point. I want to like highlight that. So you're doing things based on who you think they are, mm-hmm. not on who they really are, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And when you put your behaviors in context, it makes the most sense. Like it, your behaviors as as the partner, as a survivor make sense when you recognize that you're trying to fix a relationship based on who you think they are. So why wouldn't you give them more time or more patience or try a different love language or read a book together or be willing to go to therapy or try a new communication strategy or give them some space because they've been stressed and Mm -hmm. all the things that we do. Yep. And I do think that, um, do you think that these people, most of them know what they're doing or are they just kind of, moving along through whatever gets them the next thing that they need. I mean, are these people conniving? Like you say, there's, you know, psychopaths Mm -hmm. or whatever. Is that a level of that? Or are they just kind of feeling it as they go? Mm -hmm. 
Depends on the level of narcissist you're talking about. So the higher up you get, the more intentional they are, the more vindictive they are, and the more that they strategically plan. If you talk about a malignant narcissist, which is said to be the pinnacle of the dark triad, the point at which narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, which is a singular focus on power, all collide, they are highly vindictive. They are motivated by power, profit, pleasure, and they will go there's no limit to how far they'll go to get what they want. If you're talking about more of a mid to lower end narcissist, then they are really just doing what feels best for them at the time. And they simply don't care how their behaviors impact you. So if they want to, they just do whatever they want. It's not necessarily that they're trying to be super vindictive. It's that they are trying to fulfill their own ego. They're very validation seeking. They're very novelty seeking. They like new things. They kind of get bored. So they'll find new girls on Instagram to look at or go talk to somebody else or just do different things that completely disregard you as a person. They don't think about how it'll impact you. They're just doing what they want to do. Yeah. I feel like, so there came a point in the relationship that I was in where I had enough, like there was just so much mm-hmm. stuff um, that when you said this like malignant, cause it's no, by no way, like I have so, com- so much compassion actually for narcissists in a certain way, because like you can only be created out of your own pain. You know what I mean? Like they were mm-hmm. created out of pain, which was created out of pain. And so I want to make sure that I state that because it's no way am I trying to be like, I'm a victim. But when you said the power thing that they would do anything for mm-hmm. power. So I had finally had enough. Like there's just so much in our relationship that was happening that um, I finally was like throwing his things out the window. And I was like, you got to leave. Like I'm kicking you out. Like I can't mm-hmm. do this anymore. Like I was screaming, crying, all these things. So he, of course, like tried, well, not of course, but he tried to attack me and everything. And I got away and I left. And then I came back and he had called the cops on me and I went to jail. And I remember this moment of when I was being arrested where I lived on the second floor and I had this balcony that you could look out. He was standing there with the stone cold face with a little smirk on like a little like smirk, like Mm. I just got you. And I was because he didn't have anywhere to go. He didn't have a place to go, all these things. So he, I think, switched right into what you just said, which is that. I only mm. care about power. You're trying to kick me out and I feel powerless. So it was like, I felt it. I felt this mm. whole power game. And then even after I got arrested, he would try to do things to like get me out of that, like to break the rules of that and like do all these things. So I think that there really is this, like you said, some of it, they do start to strategize. Like they mm-hmm. do start to, the ones mm-hmm. on the, the ones that, are trying to get somewhere like some of them I believe are just kind of like they don't even know their narcissistic tendencies you know but Mm -hmm. that when you said that power dynamic oh my gosh so within that how because I can still see that like I can still like he's not in my life and he hasn't been in my life for like over a year like a year and a half now like no contact Mm -hmm. um but I can still see that play out yeah that's a that's a yeah 
Yeah, that's a great example of the more vindictive quality. And like you said, the point at which you were ready to push back and say no more. Some people do find that it gets worse before it gets better or before it implodes. Because once you call them out and they know you know, Mm -hmm. then something really creepy starts happening, which is that they will actually start telling the truth and they'll actually start letting you see how vindictive or sinister they are. All up until that point, as long as they think that getting you to believe in this facade is helpful, then all their energy goes to that. They're either great or they're the victim. Mm -hmm. And as long as that's working, they'll go with that. But the point at which you say, no more, I'm done. You know, this is not okay anymore. These manipulations are not going to work anymore. I'm not the crazy one. Then that is the point at which sometimes you have a flip switch. And I can't tell you how many of my clients too have told me stories about that, how they'll see in the narcissist's eyes, it's like they're hollow. And then you see this like evil, it's kind of chilling really. Like your body is recognizing the presence of danger, even if you don't exactly know how far it'll go or where it's coming from or why, but you just know that something is really sinister about this person. Yes. Yeah. That's really what started to happen. So I mean, I'm doing a lot better now. It's like, wow. Mm -hmm. So how, where then do people go from there once they recognize something in order to heal? um, How do you help them with that? Mm -hmm. The first step is really understanding what you've been through. Like we're talking about understanding the inner workings of a narcissist. That's the first part of my book is just really diving into what is a narcissist? What is it not? Like I said, it's not a diagnosis. It's a descriptive term. And I think that's so important to healing because this is something that doesn't make sense if you've never had an experience with a narcissist before. Like if you come from being around people who are pretty healthy or follow pretty healthy communication strategies, or just if you've never had an experience with a narcissist, you have no idea how they think differently because they think very differently than a healthy person. They're not trying to build a relationship to spend life with someone or to, to develop true intimacy and connection. They're looking to control you. So understanding what a narcissist is, the different types of narcissists, how narcissistic abuse works, because that's something I see a lot of times in survivors is they, they don't really know how to even put into words what they've been through. Like they have all of these feelings and all these confusing thoughts. And they're like, well, this piece doesn't make sense. And this happened and this and this, but I don't understand how they all fit together. So that's often where I start with people is like, you know what, we're just going to take all the puzzle pieces of your life and we're going to throw them all down, all the things that don't make sense and all the confusing and conflicting emotions and all the cognitive dissonance, that internal conflict we have when things don't make sense. We just lay it all out there like a puzzle piece. And then we start putting them back together in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's great because you're um, a psychotherapist and then you're also a coach. Mm-hmm. So I know that can be, you know, <clears throat> two completely different ways of helping someone. But the psychotherapy, you figure it out. You bring stuff up. You put it all into place and say, look, this is what's happening. And then the coach then can say, OK, and this is what we need the action steps to take mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. what it is yeah. you need to do to start healing. Yeah, it's a balance. Exactly. Because once you have that understanding, then a lot of people get to a point of, okay, but what do I do with this? And that's where a lot of people get stuck. Like there's so much information now, which is great on narcissism. 
um, and making sure accurate information is out there is really important. But people have a lot more access to resources and to knowledge now. But then there's a point at which, okay, but how do I heal? And that's when we start talking about things like, you know, boundaries. What, what can that really look like in your life? A lot of people get stuck there. And so part of my book helps people explore why you have the current boundaries that you have. Because a lot of times I think people think, well, I'm just not good at boundaries as if it's like I have blonde hair, like this is just how it is. Um, but really it's something that you developed. And so exploring your childhood and the impact that your family dynamics had on you and what you learned from that, what was your role in the family and what do you think it means to be a good person. How do you be a good person, a kind person? What does that mean? Because a lot of times we think that's the opposite of setting boundaries. Like I can't be really kind and giving and loving and set boundaries or walk away when things don't make sense and helping people realize that those are not two different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is beautiful because as I've started to interact, I guess what my thing is like by myself now, like in my friendships and my certain relationships, I'm doing way better with setting boundaries because that's safer yeah. for me because I know that these people actually love me. And a lot of the people that I am in intimate relationships with, and I'm not saying like sexual intimacy, I'm just saying like intimate as in like we are very close and we share things with each other. Like we're all kind of on a healing path. So like I can now call my friend up and be like, hey, I can't go to this event. I just feel really tired. Like I don't feel like I want to go and interact in this energy and those. And now it's like, okay, I understand. But what I feel like is, and I have a client as well that went through a narcissistic relationship and it's been taking her a lot because too, in the similar way as me, is when I go to date a a man again, I am the most, I'm so, I'm terrified. I'm like, are, is he going to try to control me? Is he talking to someone else? Is he going home and uh, masturbating to someone that we saw? Like, mm -hmm. that's when I'm not okay. So, like, I'm so okay by myself now. Like, I, I feel like I can set boundaries with myself. Like, even like you said at the beginning, like, as an introvert, like, today, I just put myself out there yesterday in such a big way that today I want to like cocoon, right? Like I don't want anyone to even set an eye on me, like get your eyeball off me, right? But so I know that today I'm going to be able, but that's my boundary. I can't do a lot. Yeah. But how do you heal? And like, even when I'm like, no one gets to even touch me. Like the one guy that I was yeah. talking to, he couldn't touch me for two months. He was like, you literally made me wait like two months to touch you. And I'm like, I don't know how to like be safe in this type of yeah. thing now. And I know that my client also felt the same thing. Like there's this guy, he's so communicative and she's like, when's the shoe going to drop? When's the, when am I going to find out who he really is? So is there anything that you can speak about on like how, as you start to engage in that mm -hmm. other type of intimate relationship, you know, like one that you're actually trying to get into a partnership with how do you go about that? Like setting those mm -hmm. boundaries or like even dealing with that? Cause it's like a trauma brain kicks in. It's mm -hmm. like, when I'm talking to you, it's not there. But if I was yeah. talking to someone that took me out on a date and wanted to actually like get to know me, it's like warning, warning, mm -hmm. warning, warning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's exactly how trauma and triggers work because fears generalize. So it was, you know, one romantic relationship and then it generalizes to well, all romantic relationships kind of have this trigger warning with them. And that's beautiful that 
you notice that boundaries have been easier to set in your more trusting relationships, because that's something I see people make a mistake of a lot. And they're like, well, I know I need boundaries with my sister or my mom or my dad or my partner. So let me start there. And that's so overwhelming. So I really encourage people do not start with your most intimate relationships first, start on the outside in. So that's great that you started with friendships and people that you already had that more safe and secure attachment with. And you are teaching your body even by doing that. And it takes time. Like a year has not, is not honestly that long, especially for the kind of intense relationship that you've been through a year. You, you've just detoxed. You've just okay. kind of made sense of what you've been through. You are giving your body time to, to learn what does it mean to be in a healthy relationship? Like, how does that feel? Almost like you have to reteach your body or maybe teach it for the first time what that really feels like. And so every time you set a boundary with your friend and they're like, totally fine, take time for yourself. And you can just go, okay, I'm okay. That's good. You are doing something for your healing. So don't even overlook that because that's huge. And it's so relatable to, to survivors. Um, So that, that's a huge step in and of itself. And yeah, then, probably just to, to remind yourself that it's okay if someone's trying to, get, you know, come into your life. And if you say, no, I need a lot, I need three months before you can touch me, yeah. then that's what you need to do. Yeah. That's so yeah. important is yes. Giving yourself permission to do that. There's a podcast I was listening to and Matthew Hussey, he's a really big like dating coach. And he said something about relationships. And he said, one of the most important things to, to keep in mind when you go into a new relationship is we'll see. You don't know yet if this person can be trusted or not trusted. You don't know if they're toxic or not toxic. You don't know if they're telling you the truth or if they're hiding this backstory, but you will over time. So it's not about feeling like I have to go in and I have to know all the signs and I better see the triggers and I better not overlook things this time. Cause that's so much pressure on you and you literally can't do that. So don't, you know, expect yourself to do what you can't do, but what you can do, like you said, is give your, yourself that space to go. We'll see. I don't know. Here's where I'm at. And here's what I'm comfortable with. And by continually setting those healthy boundaries, you will automatically weed out the people that are like, you know what? I can't deal with this. I can't even touch you in like two months. I'm out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then you're not for me. And so, you you know, even by doing that and giving yourself the space to slowly open up to people as you feel comfortable, then you're going to attract the right people. Okay. So I wanted to just get your perspective because (laughs) we both know someone in our life who is also recovering from a narcissistic relationship, but more in the workplace. And this was Mm. like years and years in the workplace. So I wanted to get your perspective on the difference because in like relationships is one thing. And then Mm -hmm. actually working for someone with that diet, that tendency and those behaviors, would you be able to touch upon that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, I just actually talked to someone who did a whole podcast on uh, workplace narcissism because it's really not that different, honestly, from being in a relationship. We talk a lot about romantic relationships or narcissists in your family, but I think the workplace can be, I mean, just as damaging because if you think about how much time someone spends in the workplace, we spend more time typically at work and with coworkers and our boss than we do our own families. So that can it's kind of like growing up in a toxic family system. Cause when you step into a workplace, you, if there's a narcissist there, it is a toxic system. And what I see a lot of people going through in, in the workplace with narcissists is triangulation 
and so much chaos. Like narcissists will talk to someone else, to someone about you and to others about you. And so there's always this back and forth, like mixing of communication and they're telling people lies about you or they're telling, you know, colleagues that you said something about them that you didn't say. And so there's so much conflict. So all this conversation we're talking about as far as boundaries and walking away or disengaging from triggering conversations. That's something I tell people a lot in the workplace is really try not to get into conversations that aren't about work. Keep it very work related, you know, surface. How was the weather? It was a great weekend. Here's what we're doing today. And if they, that narcissist tries to tip the conversation into, well, what do you think about so-and-so? And oh, so-and-so told me this or asked me to do this. Be very cautious if a toxic person asks you for your opinion or your feedback on a certain other person or certain other topic. And if they try to get engaged in conversations about your family or like really into your personal life, it's also okay to back away from those conversations too. Yeah, that's exactly what took place. Mm -hmm. I mean, luckily this person's not at that workplace anymore, but it was like, there was so much of that. And at the end too, the, how the narcissist usually discards, right? Like, I Mm -hmm. think that's a big thing. Like whether it's a romantic, like they have to be on top, right? They have to look Mm -hmm. Oh, you could correct me. I don't know. But yeah. from my experience, they have to kind of look good. So like my narcissist, he had to look like the victim. He had to look good. He had to put me away, like those things. And then the person that we know um, that has been going through a thing with in the workplace, they decided to leave that workplace. Mm-hmm. And that narcissist had to make that person look awful. Mm-hmm. Just in your campaign. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly. And for that person, it was so hard on them um, for many months. And I think it's still hard on them. So like, what is your, and then I, I know, cause we I could talk to you forever. Um, (laughs) But um, like, what would your, I guess, professional perspective be on like when that starts, like when the smear campaign starts, like that's a, that's Mm -hmm. a time to set your boundaries or like, how do you, because, I mean, it's hard to hear someone say mean things about you in general. Yeah, yeah. Or untruthful it things. Is. Right. And we really have to be on the offense. Anytime we go into a workplace, we should really all be keeping good records of things and getting things in writing. But if you're in a toxic workplace or you know your your boss or your colleague is narcissistic or toxic, then you have to be keeping records. Like, it is a part of your job. And what I mean is as much as possible, avoid being alone with that person. And even if you do have to be alone with them and you have to have conversations with them, then be following up via email. Like just get everything as much as possible in writing because when it gets to that point where there's a smear campaign, you do not want to get into a he said, she said battle with a narcissist because to your point, they will, they're better at this than we are. Like they make a living off of making people believe they're someone they're not. Mm-hmm. So their whole like world is founded on people believing this facade. So they will lie about anything and they will go to a great extent to make you look like, you know, the the perpetrator or the bad guy. So keeping those records is is really important. And and 
keeping close colleagues, hopefully you have some people in your workplace that understand. And even if it's one or two other people who can vouch for what you've said, even if those people don't necessarily want to get into the weeds with it and like have to take your side, at least can you have some people who can acknowledge that a certain conversation happened or that this was your part of the project. And yes, they did tell you to do that or no, that really wasn't your responsibility. Like, do you have those people who can even speak to the truth of what's happened? Yeah. Yeah. Just for your own peace of mind, probably after that, you know, even after you walk away and if it's still going on, you know that you weren't crazy because that's yeah. sometimes how they can try to make you feel is that you were the crazy one. I don't know what you're talking about. So just to have those people that are like, no, that really did happen. And you're just like, okay, I'm not crazy, but now I need to walk away and pick up the pieces, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and then that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That piece about feeling like you're going crazy, all narcissists gaslight. And that's really what you're talking about. When someone, there's a level of trust there and then they use that to distort and deny your reality and then turn it around and make you think you're the crazy one or that there's something wrong with you. Like that's, that's the full circle of gaslighting. It's not even just lying or denying the truth. It's lying and making you think you're crazy. So if you can even have one person, yeah, who can vouch for you and say, I saw that or that did happen. They did say that, you know, that can make all the difference. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I know because it would be and it's interesting too because the narcissist that I was in a relationship with it would get to a point where I would be crying and he then all of a sudden that's when the Mm -hmm. face comes on right nothing and he'd be filmed then he would start filming me and he would say look how crazy you're being look how crazy you are like and it would be me on the floor just saying why are you doing this why are you doing this crying and he'd be like wow look at her she's so crazy and like would facetime people like in his family to be like look at how she's acting like i don't know how i'm in the and like as i'm like laying there crying so it's Mm -hmm. like very and then those people on the phone would be like why are you calling me like while she's like this like i remember he called his cousin and his cousin's like, you got to, he's like, why aren't you comforting your girl? Like, I, I'm confused. But like, why, like that to me was like, weird. Like, that was like really weird. So that's where I think it's more of that power control dynamic, probably of like feeling mm-hmm. like I can make someone feel this way. Like, do they, do they get mm-hmm. off on that type of thing? Or because maybe they don't feel feelings. Narcissists have feelings, but for themselves. So they are, they're annoyed or disgusted with your expression of emotion because they're really not comfortable with their own and they really don't do a good job regulating their own emotions. So the more they see you off balance, the more it affirms to them that I am better than. Clearly, Uh, I'm not the one with problems here. Look at you. Like you're sitting here crying, having your meltdown or whatever. And so, yeah, they can take that one up position of like, wow, look at you. And the gaslighting that goes along with that, the intensity. Yeah. He really went through a lot of steps to try to make you think you were crazy. And that's even an example of triangulation as well, like pulling someone else into it. And that's when gaslighting really becomes intense if they can get other people to agree with them. Mm -hmm. And if you are getting feedback from others, like, you know, what is wrong with you? You seem really upset. Even sometimes well-meaning people can be like, 
what's wrong? You seem so depressed or you're so anxious. Like maybe you should talk to somebody. I have noticed that you've kind of changed lately and maybe they're doing so genuinely, but it gives you that thought of, oh, what is wrong with me? Like I have been feeling off and I haven't been feeling like me. So maybe this whole thing is me. And of course the narcissist is more than willing for you to take all the blame and let you think that you're the crazy one and you're the one with the problem. Yes. Yeah. The triangulation that happens is it could be a object. It could be a person. It could be, it's just like that. I always Mm -hmm. kind of felt like, yeah, like he's my boyfriend. I always had to feel like I was like making sure I looked better than other girls or like, it's like, I, he was getting me to perform and be like this little monkey because it's like anyone we, anywhere we go, it could be, and it would be like the, the, like, I'm not saying weirdest girl, like I don't know them, but it would be like, I was like dressed the nines and he's talking to like Susie who was in baggy sweatpants and like had a stain on her shirt. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, they will do anything. And it's how many girls, um he would talk to and like send the screenshots of that and then I would have to mm-hmm. then I the one girl she was like he was saying mean things about me and she was starting to like be like wow she must be crazy and toxic so I reached out to her and I was like I really wish that more women would have each other's backs first and start asking questions because mm-hmm. I said this guy just slid into your dm just started talking about some girl I was like why are you jumping on board with that I think that's weird and I would wish that there'd be more com- camaraderie within the female community mm-hmm. She completely like was like, wow, I've never had anyone say that to me before. And then we both stuck like we haven't. It was like, but I had to do that. But it clicked something for me. That's what I learned is like Mm. now I look out for women Mm. or like look out for other things. And I ask more questions before I wouldn't ask as many questions or I would be like, she must be crazy because how many people or not how many, but, like, I've had that other guys be like, wow, my ex was crazy. Now that's, like, a, I want to talk to her. <laughs> like, what What was that? Like, because maybe she was, but also, what were you doing? You know, before, mm-hmm. it used to be, like, this badge of honor of, like, I'm not crazy, and he's choosing me, and now I'm like, why are you choosing me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what do you want? Why do you choose me? How is the ex crazy? What's taking place? Because now... Yeah. I'm looking, you know? <laughs> right. And that's that's healing from narcissistic abuse too, is you're being more discerning. Mm. You, instead of just accepting what people say, you've had enough experience now to realize, okay, everything isn't quite as it seems. I can't just believe someone just because they says, just because they say that, or just because they say, yeah, my, my ex was crazy. Like you said, maybe they were. That goes back to that idea of, you know, we'll see, or I just don't know what I don't know yet. So right. let me just be a little bit more discerning and see if this person is genuine or not, or see if I can believe them or not, and then make a decision. And that's really the post-traumatic growth that can happen after narcissistic abuse, where you actually improve your, yeah, your ability to discern um, instead of just taking someone at their word, because now you know that sometimes people say something and they don't mean it. And some people seem really nice and it's all a facade. You know things now that you didn't before. Right. Yeah. You can always come back. Post-traumatic growth. Yeah. You can come back to yourself then and say, okay, I learned all of this. So what can I do now (laughs) to keep myself safe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's all comes back to you then at that point. So now about um, narcissists in general. If somebody doesn't really realize that they're a narcissist and maybe they're listening to this, 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Where is the place that they can go? Um, you know, mm. if they really want to change and heal, I mean, if someone sincerely sees themselves in any of this and mm. they want to, um, do something about it, they're just like, whoa, okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's something, you know, that would happen. What would they, what would you, um, tell them to do? Just go and find a therapist. They can really start to talk about their past and why they have become this. Yeah, therapy is a must for sure with someone who understands narcissism and narcissistic abuse. It, you know, I wish I could say this happens more, but narcissism is such a rigid personality style that once it's set in place, it is very resistant to change. And the kinds of change that I even mean is like maybe they can mm, be more on time. Like maybe they could be a little bit more respectful of what you say that you need or like picking up stuff from the store, not denying that they just rolled their eyes at you. So like the changes that we're talking about are pretty minimal, but you know, I've worked with some narcissists. I have some narcissistic clients now. There's a handful of them. It doesn't happen often, but the first step is that self-awareness of, Ooh, maybe I do do that and getting with a therapist or a coach who understands narcissism so that they can highlight that for you so they can call it out. Because if you just kind of go to a general person who really doesn't know, you know about narcissism, that could really do more harm than good because they're not going to be able to pick up on these patterns or know what to do with it. So if you can yeah. learn some emotional regulation strategies, because that's at, at the heart of a lot of what narcissists struggle with is they don't regulate their emotions well. And that's why they try to control so much of the other people in the environment around them is because they have quite an, an erratic emotional inner world. So if they can learn to regulate their emotions better, then that can be a great place to start. Nice. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Well, we need to um, get on to our next uh our next part of this uh, podcast because we could talk to you, yes, for very and I can long talk about it all day. Exactly. So this is the part of the podcast that we call the Deep Dive Five, and I'm going to ask you a series of five questions, and yeah. um, whatever comes up comes up for you. Uh, the first one is: When do you feel or have you felt the most seen and heard in your life? Oh me. Yeah, my introvert is coming up because I'm like, let me go away and think about that and I'll get back yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, I think in those moments where you're just allowed to have the feeling that you feel with um, my husband, Matt, he's so good at doing that. And that's been a really healing part of being with him is I still like, like, like you said, Sydney, like have these triggers of, can I say this? Are you going to be mad at me? Like what's going to happen after this? And, um, I'll just be able to share a feeling or say something. And he's like, okay, well, that's how you feel. And I'm like, really? That's it? <laughs> like, you're not going to criticize it or judge it or tell me I shouldn't feel that way or get mad at me. That's my thing. It's all I think people are going to be mad at me. So mm -hmm. I think in those moments when I'm just allowed to feel the way I feel. Nice. What has been the best wisdom that you've received and that you live by? Hmm. These are deep questions. It's really hard for me <laughs> to give off the cuff answers. Um, best advice that I've had to live by. Probably about what comes to mind right now is just being present in the moment and that you don't have to be perfect to be loved. 
Because that was something that I felt for a long time. It's like love is very conditional and you have to earn it. So just knowing that if it's if it's real love, then it's not conditional. And that even just for myself, like my own self-love, that I don't have to achieve. I don't have to keep doing to be good enough. Like I'm good enough where I am and I can keep doing more if I want to, but that doesn't relate to my self-worth. Awesome. And what do you feel is the most vital emotion that we must express to heal and to feel well? I really don't think that I could pick one because there's so many, but I would say that anger is one I see a lot of narcissistic abuse survivors struggle with, especially when they also struggle with self-worth. Like if I think I'm part of the problem or I should have seen the signs or I should have known better then I don't really have a right to feel angry. So they won't allow themselves to express anger or they'll have anger toward themselves, but they won't have anger toward the actual perpetrator or the person who abused them or what happened. So I think when we get through the sadness and the anger and or through the, the sadness and the grief and we get to anger, I think that is a really important emotion to be able to feel and process. What's your favorite self-care and healing activity or practice? Music and going on drives. I've always loved getting in my car and going somewhere. I think because I never want to feel trapped because I have felt trapped before, like in toxic relationships or environments. So my car is my go-to and like just driving and listening to music, especially NF and just blasting out in the car. And what's your heart's greatest wish? Hmm. For people to know that they're not broken and that there's nothing wrong with them, especially if they've been through trauma, that something bad happened to you, but that doesn't mean you're bad. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. That is so well, beautiful. awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming thank in here and guys. being so open and honest with us today. Cause I know we, <laughs> that's what we, it's hard sometimes, you know, and that's, that's what we like to see is, you know, authenticity and, and you yeah. definitely put it all out there for us today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And guys. so listeners can go and find you at chelseabrookcole.com. And there's a newsletter there that mm -hmm. um, I'm definitely going to sign up for it. It's on understanding and healing from um, healing from narcissistic abuse. Um, you have a whole lot of subscribers for this, and it's where you help people understand how narcissists think, how to communicate with narcissists, learn strategies for boundary setting and post-traumatic growth, and provide early access to your books and courses and all of that kind of thing. So I will definitely put that in the show notes so people can find you. And uh, again, thank you so much for, for showing up here for us today. It's thank so important. You. Thank yeah. you guys for an authentic conversation. I really, I really enjoyed it. Good. Yeah, it was very healing and helpful for me. I did not, I mean, um, when we first started doing the podcast and choosing people that were going to come on for the season and stuff, we, I think you came up a while, like we couldn't get you on until now. So you came back mm -hmm. a while ago and yeah, this just was like, I remember seeing it being like, oh, I need to talk to her. <laughs> like, I need to. So this was just very enlightening for me in so many ways and also mm. validating and affirming. And so I hope that for the listeners, they feel similar that have been through some things like this as well. So thank you for showing up and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's it's 
definitely needed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for this platform. And I'm, I was happy to be here. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thank you listeners for showing up as well. And we are going to see you next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode. If you would like to find out more about narcissistic abuse, Chelsea's book, or her services, go to ChelseaBrookCole.com. You can sign up for her newsletter at ChelseaBrookCole.com newsletter. The links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you 